This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. Let's, let's take this conversation a little deeper. White people are responding to elevated conversations on existing racism by banning books and critical race theory from classrooms. As a historian, this is nothing new, right? This is just history repeating itself. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including the Honorable Charles Qualls, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. This is the CBF Podcast Conversation nestled in the heart of the gathering place at General Assembly in Atlanta, Georgia. We are brought to you by Clergy Confessions Podcast, a new series coming out in August 2023. Listen to ministers sharing truly awful experiences in anonymity. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Our guest is Dr. Jamar Tisby. Jamar is a New York Times bestselling author, public historian, and professor at Simmons College in Kentucky. Jamar, thank you for joining the conversation. I love this setup. It, it sort of lends itself to freestyle rap or singing. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the floor. 
and you can go for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, my friend, um, we have broken our streak. We managed to sit down for an interview every year for four years, and I failed in 2022 and didn't have you on the podcast. So, how has the last year been for you? Well, I'm waiting for your apology. <laughs> I, I apologize profusely. <laughs> You're forgiven. No, um, I've appreciated being on here, appreciated you coming on. It's been an eventful year, a year of transition for myself and my family. So I started teaching. I'm a professor of history at Simmons College of Kentucky, which is a big deal for me because it meant we relocated from the Delta region of Arkansas, which is where I've always been when we've spoken. And now I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and it's a faith-based uh, HBCU, Historically Black College, and it's been an incredible experience for myself and my family. Uh, that's been a, a, a huge transition for us, and so just kind of getting our, our, our feet steady in a new environment. Wow, that's incredible. Simmons College connection with CBF, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky in connection with a partner school there, and Kevin Cosby's an amazing pastor. Uh, friend of the podcast and things within CBF Live, so I'm happy for you in this Thank you. this new spot. Um, I read recently that a college professor was fired because of your book being used in her syllabus. What, what was that all about? <laughs> so this has to do with Professor Julie Moore and Taylor University. Professor Moore taught a composition class, and every composition class has a theme. For her, the theme was racial justice. She got her start teaching right after grad school at a historically black college. As a white woman, this experience at an HBCU completely changed her perspective on race. After she was done teaching there and took on other positions, she said, this is always gonna be part of my teaching. And so she brought that with her to Taylor. It's not the first time she's taught that course at Taylor, but because of the changing context and climate we have politically and socially, it became a thing. It became woke. It became critical race theory. So what happened with my involvement is she was called into a meeting with the provost to dismiss her. She's understandably asking why. What's the reason for dismissal? The provost is uninformed about her class. Most of what he knows is hearsay. He's maybe read the first page or two of her syllabus. So she presses him, why, why, why am I being dismissed? And he says, well, the problem is Jamar Tisby. <laughs> Turns out she had quoted me, Professor Moore had quoted me on the first page of her syllabus, and that's it. She had not assigned my book. She had not assigned an excerpt or reading for her class. She was just quoting something from The Color of Compromise to help frame the overall theme of the class. And for this provost who hadn't really done his homework and didn't have a good reason to dismiss a faithful professor, he defaulted to the one boogeyman name, which was mine, that he knew. And so uh, Professor Moore contacted me. I posted her story on my substack at jamartisby.substack.com. And then Religion News Service also picked up the story. So that's how folks found out about it. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative 
The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Let's take this conversation a little deeper. White people are responding to elevated conversations on existing racism by banning books and critical race theory from classrooms. As a historian, this is nothing new, right? This is just history repeating itself. So it's nothing new in the sense that certain folks will always try to reassert control when they feel like it's slipping away. Uh, We had an earlier session today at the conference where someone asked, can we trace some of this, what we sort of see as backlash, can we trace it to the election of President Barack Obama as the first black president? And I said, absolutely, yes. After that, you get the rise of the Tea Party, which morphs into Trumpism, which morphs into white Christian nationalism and a January 6th insurrection and all of these things. So whenever... uh, their power feels threatened, they are going to come in force. That's what we're seeing also in Christian higher education. And I've seen this for years. So I was also the recipient of some pretty negative interactions through the leadership at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. They're another, they're, they're branding themselves. And here's the thing, it's sticky because these colleges and universities have made it part of their marketing to demonstrate how far to the right they are. That's how they get students, that's how they get donor dollars, and as long as they're getting financial support to taking these stances, it probably won't change. So I saw this because at Grove City College, I gave a chapel message, a very mild sort of racial justice message in chapel that wouldn't have been controversial in a lot of places, but some alumni and, and, and other folks got hold of that message. They said uh, they created a petition, save GCC from CRT. It goes up to the board of trustees. The board of trustees appoints a subcommittee to, to create a report on mission drift, and they named me among some of their professors and staff as evidence of mission drift, and they called it, quote, a mistake to invite me to speak at chapel. So I've been seeing this creeping for a long time, and I even have a podcast series called Those Meddling Kids, the the crusade against CRT and Christian higher education. And we better know that there are purges happening in Christian higher education and other spaces to get rid of the elements that they think are too 
liberal or progressive on racial justice and a host of other issues. So Jonathan Haidt and uh, Greg Lukanoff are two academics. Uh, a few years back, they wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Have you read it? I haven't read okay. it, but I've heard of it. So it's, it's a look at Generation Z's effect on campuses across the country. Among many things, they're examining how both the right and the left are pushing universities to extreme censures and dismissal of, of, of professors. And there's one quote that stick out to me for our conversation. It says, a, a culture that allows the concept of safety to creep in so far it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in the daily life they need in order to become strong and healthy. So you've got these cases of professors getting dismissed for quoting you. You've got uh, the, maybe the opposite ex extreme of, of those kinds of things. So what is the balance as thinking of as a person in academia, what's the balance between keeping people accountable for their words and actions in an academic setting, especially racism and sexism and homophobia, and cultivating an environment where ideas can be examined and debated and deconstructed? I don't think a lot has fundamentally changed in the actual educational process. That is to say, on what happens or needs to happen in the classroom. So to a person, myself, uh, Professor Julie Moore from Taylor University, another similar case, Professor J Sam Jokel from Palm Beach Atlantic University, all of us preface our classes and our lectures and our themes by saying, these are different perspectives. You don't have to agree with everyone. This is part of a healthy, robust education to engage and interact with ideas that are different from yours. Any decent professor, not even an exceptional one, any decent educator will say the same thing. Here's a, a breadth of viewpoints. Let's think about them. That's what college is for. What's happened is a shift in the leadership and the alumni and the trustees and the political environment to make it so that we can't even have those conversations in the classroom, that those are much more fraught, that those could even get you dismissed from your job. We also have I think an immature understanding among some students of how to defend their beliefs. So when we disagree, and we will, what do we, are we attributing character and internal motives to someone with whom we disagree? Are our young people being taught how to disagree well in the sense of we don't share the same viewpoints, but we can exist in the same space for educational purposes. And I think that's across the spectrum. But here's the thing. I don't want to get, it, get lost. In a lot of these cases, what folks are asking for, especially students, is a place where they don't have to defend the legitimacy of their existence because of racism, because of sexism, because of homophobia, whatever it might be. So what's really sparking this backlash, I think, is people who historically, their voices have been muted, they're starting to speak up and be heard more, and that's threatening to the established status quo, and then we get this pushback. You recently wrote an article you wrote, uh, you wrote, um, there's also a sense in which I'm glad that my work has been labeled controversial. The issue is not causing controversy, the issue is with whom 
and for what reason your work is controversial. If my, in my efforts to expose truth about racism, vex leaders in Christian or higher education who are more worried about appearing not woke than preserving academic freedom and Christian character, then so be it. You know, just, <laughs> just, uh, just kind of that, let's tie that, tie that bow on there with your words, you know. Uh, so you, you recently wrote a powerful article uh, about the anniversary of the murder of the Manuel Nine um, and the victims of a racist hate crime at the hands of a white supremacist. Um, it's hard to believe it was eight years ago yeah. uh, this happened. We were actually at General Assembly when it happened. Wow. Um, you wrote, racial progress is not a myth, but neither is it a completed project. But let's not use racial progress as a reason to ignore the ways racism reinvents itself. So we white people uh, like to think that so much progress has been made since the igniting of demand for change that was really kind of catalyzed through the murder of George Floyd. But what are the new ways racism is inventing itself in the last few years that maybe people are not paying attention to? We can look legislatively at, for instance, uh, a decision to revert, at the decision to reverse parts of the Voting Rights Act. When what we should be doing, because of the history of this nation when it comes to civil rights and particularly voting rights, what we should be doing is expanding access. People have used uh, recent elections as well as the COVID-19 pandemic to roll back access to voting. And so they'll do things that are sneaky because they don't mention race explicitly. They'll close polling stations in certain districts which happen to be predominantly black. They will uh, change the times uh, th that, that make it more inconvenient for people who, who, who work for an hourly wage to get off work and go vote. Uh, they will require different forms of ID that are harder to access for certain populations, right? So this is one sort of legislative example of how racism is rearing its ugly head. But I would also point to what I mentioned before, things like white Christian nationalism, where there's this certain view of politics and nation and church that also happens to be pretty racially exclusive. I say that in the same breath as saying there, the boundaries are porous to allow people of color into those circles if they subscribe to the same ideology. So the moment you're disruptive and say, hey, we should be more inclusive, then you become persona non grata. But as long as you told the party line, they'll accept all races and faces and, and, and in fact, utilize and weaponize these folks to say, see, one of your own people is agreeing with us. Therefore, we can't be racist and we're not wrong. So one of the things that I say in my first book, The Color of Compromise, is that racism never goes away, it just adapts. The reason for the resilience of racism from a theological perspective is racism is sin. And we know all sin is not going to go away until Jesus comes back. Another reason for the resilience of racism is we haven't changed the fundamental story that we tell about race. The fundamental story we tell is one of white supremacy in its basic meaning, that white people are superior or central. And until that narrative changes, that the world does not indeed revolve simply around people of European descent, those who are now considered white, then we will always see reifications of racism in different forms. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, a model ministry. 
Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then a model ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. So we are recording this podcast on June 29th. I don't know when it's going up, but it's important to say the date because on this day, the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action. Uh, something that was put in place to help curb the well intentions of people to exclude black and brown people from universities. You know, it, it was not part of the system, uh, so let's create something within the system to guarantee that at least people have a place at the table. It seems so difficult to depend on the goodwill of people knowing the past legacy and the present legacy around racism to believe that the the revoking of that is going to lead us to a place of, of equity so i know you have so many thoughts on what happened today but you know where, where do you see this taking shape um i gotta begin with the emotional i'm extremely upset by this decision i'm incensed by it not only because it's wrong-headed and lacks legal justification, but because it is an now official law of the land that takes us backwards. It is in a line of revanchist white Christian nationalist attempts to take back the culture and redefine it in a narrow fundamentalist, far-right sense that excludes far more people than it includes. And it is part of a decades-long maneuvering, started with the religious right and the moral majority to take over states, state and federal Supreme Courts and reshape the laws of the land that will take us back in time to periods when people of color and black folks who look like me did not have the opportunities that were hard won by the Martin Luther Kings and the Fannie Lou Hamers and the Prathia Halls of the world. So I'm incensed because all that effort, all that hard work, all of that sermonizing and speechifying, all of the marches and the boycotts, all of the writing and the speaking and the praying that we've done gets washed away in a legal sense by folks who are more committed to this narrow ideology 
of who constitutes a true American and what constitutes fairness completely divorced from empirical data and historical information and truth. So I'm mad. It's very upsetting. <laughs> uh, to begin, <laughs> there's much more to say. Um, I'll go on to say that immediately when I hear about opposition to what we call affirmative action, I go back to the words of Martin Luther King Jr. He spoke specifically on affirmative action, though he didn't use those words. I'll read you a quote. This is in, from his book, Why We Can't Wait. He said, whenever the issue of compensatory treatment for the Negro is raised, compensatory treatment for the Negro is raised, some of our friends recoil in horror. The Negro should be, should be granted equality, they agree, but he should ask for nothing more. On the surface, this appears reasonable, but it is not realistic. In another book, he, goes, he says this, a society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for the Negro. So this Supreme Court decision is a failure to understand different kinds of discrimination. When I was a sixth grade teacher, we said fair doesn't always mean equal. Certain students had certain strengths and certain areas of support that they needed. Fairness means everybody's getting the education they need. Equality would say they're all getting the same thing in the same way, but guess what? If you've got a class of 20 different students, they could have 20 different needs as far as being able to get the knowledge that they need. So you have to tailor it for the situation. So what's happening with critiques of affirmative action is a failure to understand the positive uses of discrimination. So there were negative uses of discrimination, racially speaking, to keep black people and people of color out of institutions and away from opportunities. What King is saying here, if something special has done some, if society has done something special against the Negro, negative discrimination for exclusionary purposes, then society must now do something special for the Negro, positive discrimination for inclusionary purposes, which is the purpose of affirmative action, which is what the justices have struck down. So now what happens? We go back to the default. What is the default in the United States, racially speaking? It's segregation and inequality. Because if we can't pay attention to race, then the default, the great inertia of history, of segregation and inequality will now rule the day and we can do nothing to hold back the tide. So thank you, justices, giving that majority opinion. You just set us back. Going back to that quote I read earlier, racial progress is not a myth, but neither is it a completed project, but let's not use racial progress as a reason to ignore the ways race reinvents itself. So on a day in which it feels like racial progress has not actually been made, how do we, how do we encourage people to, especially when it seems like legislatively things seem so out of our hands, right? So how do we encourage people and how do we gather in a way that pushes us forward, that continues the inertia that has been created, especially over the last couple of years? Well, the good thing is if they want to pull us backwards, legally speaking, then we also have a blueprint to overcome those laws. And we need to go back, this is the importance of history, and study the strategies and the tactics that people before us used to get those laws changed in the first place. We have the pattern set by Brown v. Board. We have the pattern set by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We have the pattern set by the Ho Fair Housing Act of 1968, right? And so what is going to need to happen is a couple of things in my view. Number one, we need to recognize and elevate the importance of historically black institutions. 
These are institutions such as HBCUs created explicitly because black people did not have access to other white-led and white, predominantly white institutions. These HBCUs, these historically black institutions still exist. We need to fund them. And by the way, you don't have to be black to attend them. So any HBCU across this nation, any majority black institution across this nation is going to welcome people of any race or ethnicity with open arms. So if you are not finding racially and ethnically inclusive spaces in predominantly and historically white settings, understand there is a, a, a whole constellation of organizations and institutions that have been black-led and people of color-led that will welcome you and have this commitment regardless of what the Supreme Court says. Secondly, we are going to have to employ this, the, the legal tactics that we've seen in the civil rights movement, which means there are going to have to be test cases. There are going to have to be colleges and, and universities and educational institutions that say on a principal level that diversity is important to us. We are going to look at it to ensure that we have a diverse student population, which by the way, race and ethnicity is just one of many measures they look at and discriminate against along with gender, nation of origin, and other factors like that. And they say, we want a diverse student body, and we are going to look at race and ethnicity as part of the constellation of diversity that we consider important. And they're going to have to get sued, and they're going to have to countersue, and they're going to have to appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court to get this law changed. So some of these well-funded, historically white institutions that disagree with this new Supreme Court decision are going to have to use those resources to challenge an unjust law, even if it means going to court, even if it means losing and facing a penalty. I think as we think about progress, we need to think about the generation that's coming up, generation being raised right now. Uh, I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who um, was walking their 12-year-old through the history of racism in America, just, mm. you know, explaining to a 12-year-old what lynching is. Lord have mercy. And the child is... Has, has been cognitively and emotionally impacted by this whole conversation. Um, and my friend asked me uh, what they can read and what resources they can give their child next. And my recommendation was the Young Reader's Edition of How to Fight Racism. You got it. <laughs> uh, because I'm a well-branded Jamar Tisby man. So, <laughs> so kind of in wrapping up our time together, t tell us about this resource and tell us maybe why it's so important now as we think about this generation that's coming up because they're going to continue to be a part of this change that we're trying to see in our world. First, we gotta face the fear of parents, particularly white parents talking to young kids, their kids about race. Understand that as early as four or five years old, our children are getting messages about race, about skin color, about aesthetics, what counts as beauty and who counts as more important to us. So the, the idea here is it's not as if they're not hearing about race. They're just not hearing about it from you. And the earlier that we can start to teach our kids in a healthy way about race, even the hard parts, the better, because here's the alternative. If you don't teach them about race, someone else will. And you may not find what they are learning to be helpful. Now you have the double hard work of not just teaching them about race and racism, but undoing bad teachings around race and racism and replacing them. So starting earlier, here's the other thing. Take the pressure off yourself. It's not one single conversation, and you don't have to get it all right in one sitting. It is more effective if we have ongoing conversations. This simply becomes part of our dialogue as a family, as a unit, whatever it might be. So we need to dispel some of that fear. In my book, How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition, what my goal is, is to help young people realize you have agency. 
That is to say, if you see something wrong, you can do something about it. And so then I propose the arc of racial justice, which I introduce in the adult version. Uh, stands for awareness, relationships, commitment for kids. I use the head, heart, hands analogy. We need to inform our heads about race and racism. We need to have big hearts for people and relationships, and we need to have strong hands to take action. Now, I love this book because it's got a glossary. It's got call-out terms to define things. It's got great stories from my past, including growing up as a 90s kid and following the bulls in their six-peak. Um, and it's, it's got lots of great discussion questions, too. So you can go chapter by chapter. You can read it with your kid. And here's the bonus, because I like you so much. I also created a podcast series that goes along with the book where I talk to actual fifth graders about their views on race and racism. And there's a video series as well. So you can go to jamartisby.substack.com, look for How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition, Total Package, and you can get it all in one stop. Well, our guest is the scholar, the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Jamar Tisby. Jamar, it's always amazing to sit down with you. Thank you for making time to do this. And uh, if you want to learn more about Jamar, you can go to jamartisby.com. Thank you. Thank you. We'll keep this streak up next year. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.